You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. All right, so I'm reading 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. I'm pretty sure this is what you have in your handout. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning thoughts, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these uh, super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other gospels, sorry, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was indeed, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would not, who would like to claim that in, bo- in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for, either, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, for their end will correspond to their deeds. Amen. Well, church, uh, it is uh, needless to say we live in a culture uh, where people value being impressive, don't we? Influencers are those who are impressive. In our culture today, impressibility equals authenticity and reliability, doesn't it? He's got abs, therefore he's a trustworthy personal trainer. She drives a Land Rover, therefore, she's a great real estate agent. Their Instagram has high-definition, well-lit photos with lots of followers. They know what they're talking about, don't they? You see, in these two chapters of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, chapters 11 and 12, Paul's goal in this section of his letter to the church in Corinth is to turn that logic on its head. Today we explore how Paul corrects the modern view that for something to be credible, it must be incredible. Paul corrects that. 
Paul corrects the modern view that to make an impressive, you have to to make an impression, you have to be impressive. Paul corrects the view that the power of something is in its polish of the performance. Paul corrects that. He throws that logic out the window and says today what he's already said a number of times to these Corinthians. As he did in his first letter, the opening chapter, he wrote and he said, Christ did not send me to preach the gospel. Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. That's how he opened his first letter to this church. And he did so again at the start of this letter in 2 Corinthians, Sydney. He says, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and so supremely towards you. And then he did it again, didn't he? Midway through this letter, chapter 4, he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by by what? The open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He does this so that the surpassing power would not belong to us, but belong to God. And so what are we going to see Paul do in these chapters, chapters 11 and 12? Paul's goal is to teach these people that call themselves Christians. He wants to teach them that what we proclaim, the power of what we proclaim is not in the polish or the presentation. He says, we don't need to dress up a message that's already divine. He says, the good news that Jesus is Lord, it's the best news, best news. Nothing else needs to be added. Don't take anything away. The effectiveness of the gospel message is not the messenger. It's the message. Now, if you've been joining with us in this series over the last few weeks, you'll know, hey, we've already been here. We've already thought about this. We already, you know, we did the talk about the LED screens. And we thought about the you know, presentation, all that sort of stuff. That was a bit of fun. But Paul's here again. And he does this because he really, really wants the church in Corinth, and I think us today, to get this. Why? Because he loves Jesus. Chapter 10, where we've just come from, to set the context of this chapter today, says, our hope is that as your faith increases, as your faith increases, our area of influence may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel beyond you without boasting of the work already done in someone else's area of influence. So what Paul wants is this. He wants the church in Corinth to grow in their confidence in Christ and their motivation for his mission so that if this happens, Paul has a greater army to herald the good news of Jesus. He does it because he loves Jesus. He also does it for this other reason. Because he loves these guys at Corinth. He loves them. 
He loves these guys. The opening verses of our text today reveal for the motivation of Paul's heart for why he brings up this subject again. He says, I feel, verses two and three, a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid. But as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He's afraid that their thoughts will be deceived from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul's saying, guys, like I feel like your dad. I feel like your dad that's trying to give you the best thing in life. I've set up for you this amazing relationship, this incredible marriage, but I am scared that you're going to be deceived away from this relationship. Like what matters to me most, Corinthians, what matters to me most, he says, that you have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, a generous and personal integrity towards Jesus, a no-strings-attached relationship, no hidden agenda, one that is chaste, one that is pure, one that is sincere. And I'm worried, guys. I'm worried. I'm worried for you. I'm worried that you're going to be lured away from true salvation by what is shiny and sexy. I'm worried. I'm worried that you will think that there's something else that you think you need so that you can be faithful in your relationship to God. I'm worried. See, as a Christian who is serious about growing in their sincerity to to have a pure devotion to Jesus will not look at what is flashy. They won't look for what is flashy, but they'll look for who is being faithful to what is true. Paul's words to this church in Corinth, they resonate with me today. In my heart for this church, so thankful for this church. Who does this? Who comes out and it's raining and the feels like guy says it's four, feels like four degrees. Who does that? You guys do that. And I want us as a church to get this from Paul too. It's important for us right now. And what we learn today is also important for us in years to come because we don't know where we're going to be in five years' time. Don't know where any of us are going to be in five years' time. But what we learn today is how we can be a people who are devoted to Christ no matter where we are, no matter where God places us. And how are we going to look at the world around us and how are we going to think about maybe the next church that we're a part of and that we serve in wherever God calls us to? So what, is, what exactly is going on in the church in Corinth for Paul to speak up at this point? What's the context of the situation? Now, worth knowing there's some serious stuff that those in Corinth are being lured into. There's some very misleading things that are infiltrating the ears of the people in this church. We don't know how, but... There's something going on that is tickling the fancy of those in Corinth. Maybe there's a trending Netflix doco series, you know. Maybe that's what everyone's talking about right now at the church in Corinth, you know. Maybe it's a new YouTube channel, you know, talk around the water cooler at work. Oh, you heard about these new super apostles? You seen that thing that's been going on? He says, maybe it's a brand new book on the shelves at Kurong. Oh, have you read that latest book by that guy? Man, that's insightful, spiritual. It's just like, I'm just learning such new things about my life and faith. Or maybe it's a new podcast, it's trending. Everyone's onto it. It's just dropping wisdom and spiritual insights from the world like never before. Look, however the medium, this is the message. This is what's going on. 
a different version of Jesus other than the one that Paul has proclaimed is now being promoted. He says another type of spirit from what they first received is being preached. A different version of what God says is the good news is being broadcasted. This is what's going on. And it's being spoken by who? who? Paul, this is what Paul calls them in verse 13. It's being spoken by false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, just as Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. So there's no surprise that these servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And the problem is that this church in Corinth, these guys and girls, they're loving it. They're lapping it up. They long for more. Why? Well, look who's preaching it. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's the super apostles. (laughs) And they're so awesome, aren't they? They're so awesome. Verse six, they're so skilled in their speaking. You know, I feel so motivated. Motivated and spiritual when I listen to these super apostles, the way they prance around the stage and they speak in their soft, raspy voices. And they say, you're going to call down the Shekinah glory of God and I'm going to release the Holy Spirit upon you all. I'm going to trip over this cone. Verse 7, why else are they super apostles? Well, they're extravagantly expensive to hire and subscribe to, aren't they? Oh, look, if following Jesus looks like that, then... Shut up and take my money. Why else are these super apostles? Well, they, they endorse themselves. We're sending ahead their resume from LinkedIn to the churches that they get these special invites to. Oh man, we've heard of these guys' resumes. They are, they are anointed. These guys are anointed in such a special way. We love these super apostles. And they have, verse 15, the appearance of angels of light and they speak as those serving the cause of righteousness. Wow, look at these super apostles, angels of light, speaking righteousness, so legit, so legit. Impressive, maybe in the world's eyes, but not according to Paul. According to Paul, these guys are distorted, deceptive, dangerous, Demonic. He puts them in the same category as Satan. And Paul now, he's worried. He's worried that this church family that he's planted, that he's established, that he's loved and served in, it is now being lured away from the true salvation by what is shiny and sexy. He's worried that they're now believing lies and walking away from the loving relationship that can be found in God through Jesus Christ as Lord. He's worried. And his heart fears that just like Eve, they're going to see something attractive in God's world, something that God has created. They're going to be enticed by that thing and they're going to do whatever they can so that they can now find independence from God rather than delighting in relationship with God. So here, chapters 11 and 12, Paul's going to use two reasons, two reasons to help these Corinthians see through these lies. He'll give two reasons as to why the method 
is not eloquence, but weakness. You see, you'll see the good news of the gospel as legit when it's not in elegance, but in weakness. First reason why. First thing that Paul appeals to is what? Takes up the bulk of these verses we're in. It's his own life. His own life. Paul makes his main appeal from his own ministry. Paul now gets personal. Paul now fights fire with fire. He uses the logic of these super apostles against them. He's going to show them just how much God values worldly performance as a means of being persuasive. Now, up to this point, Paul has been pretty humble with the church in Corinth. He's been pretty humble about his achievements. Understated would be a good word for Paul. You know, he's a typical successful surf coaster. But now it's time to fight fire with fire. It's time to play the game with the other side of Proverbs 26. Up to this point, Paul has been a Proverbs 26.4 kind of a guy. You know, answer a fool, not according to his folly, lest you be like him. It's like, don't play their game. But now, very next verse, Paul is going to play verse 26, 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. These super apostles love a bit of a brag. And so here we get to what commentators call Paul's fool's speech. Paul gets super sarcastic for this church. He says, these super apostles, they've got some things to brag about, do they? They've got some things to brag about? All right. Let's hear some things that maybe I can brag about. Bear with me in a little foolishness, would you, as he opens this letter. All right. You super apostles, super apostles their, argumentative, their argumentative style. Um, yeah, look, I'm so sorry that I was too weak to slap you around. <laughs> Yeah, guys, I'm sorry that I was too weak to take advantage of you. Argumentative style. And then he goes on to the credentials, the credentials of these super apostles, their pedigree, where they studied, who their dad was. And Paul's just like, got that down in spades. Like, I'm from Abraham. I'm like, I'm a Pharisee. Like, you want to you wanna leak about who's really impressive here? Let's, let's compare sides. Compare the pair. Compare the pair. One is a super apostle. One is an actual apostle. (laughs) He's with Hester, sorry. And then he goes on to perseverance and strength. Well, church in Corinth, you seem to love a good overcomer story from these super super apostles. You love a good overcomer story, a good up-and-comer story, you know, about their their triumphs. Do you want to hear some overcomer stories? Some stories of perseverance? Well, what about mine? Well, um, okay, beaten up. Yeah, I've lost count about how many times I've been beaten up. The 39 lashes with the cat and nine tails, for me, five times. Uh, Pummeled with rocks and nearly died. Yeah, that was me, one time. Uh, Survived jail multiple times. Uh, Survived shipwrecks. How many shipwrecks have I survived now for the sake of my message? Three. One time, lost at sea all night on a piece of driftwood. Hmm, okay, yeah, that's good. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, 
Plenty of danger. You know, danger's my middle name, says Paul the Apostle. Danger's my middle name. Plenty of danger. But that's not all. They're just the average things. You know, I've, got da- I've had dangers from rivers. I've had danger from robbers. I've had danger from my own people. I've had danger from betrayers. I've had danger in the city. I've had danger in the wilderness. I've had danger at sea. It's all there. It's all on the list. Keep your Bible open at chapter 11. You know, I've done all-nighters. I've been without food. I've been thirsty. I've been in the cold. That's perseverance strength. What about your super apostles? How do they stack up against perseverance strength? Hey, hey, how are your super apostles looking now? Looking pretty strong, are they? Looking pretty strong? Uh-uh. That's what we've covered so far. Argument of style, credentials, perseverance. Shall I keep going? Paul says, shall I keep going? Shall we continue to compare? Shall we continue to compare? What about, what about experience? These super apostles, they seem to love to talk about their ex- transcendent experience I hear, don't they? They love it. What's the authentic, what is their authenticity of their surpassing revelations from God? Hmm? Do they have any stories of visions of the Lord himself? Do they have any stories of being called up into the third heaven? We're in chapter 12 now. Do they have anything, any stories that actually God has said, you can't tell, you can't retell this? Does Damascus, Damascus Road experience mean anything to your favourite podcasters and preachers? Didn't think so, said Paul. Look, here's the point, church in Corinth, Paul goes on to say. Here's the point, City on Hill, Surf, Surf Coast. You've been putting up with false teaching of a different Jesus, of different spirits and a different gospel. But see here, If you can't see that, at least see this. If humility isn't their strategy, if polish and performance is their preferred style, if cultural appropriation is the primary approach of these spiritual influences, they aren't from God. And here's why. Here's why I, Paul the Apostle, can be so confident in this conclusion. Here's why. Now, remember what Paul has just said about his spiritual CV? Remember all the experience he's got? Remember how he stacks up to these super apostles? Cuts them down in spades, doesn't he? He's a legend according to their books. But check this out, chapter 12. After listing his life success, he says, verse 6, to keep me from boasting, from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing revelations, a thorn, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger from Satan himself to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this so that he should leave me. But he said, he said this, my grace is sufficient for you. He said, my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ shall rest upon me. 
Now stepping back for a moment in thinking about that. If you carefully read chapters 11 and 12, you'll know that Paul, as he stands next to these super apostles, he has serious street cred, doesn't he? He makes these self-aggrandizing, pompous, self-proclaimed apostles look, super apostles look like poo. And Paul knows it. Paul knows it. And do you know who else knows it? Do you know who else knows how good Paul is and what he has to brag about? Do you know who else knows it? God knows it. God knows it. And so what does God do? What does God do? Does God go, gee, I'm sure glad we've got Paul the Apostle on our team. You know what? We can really use this now. Now we've finally got a convincing representative to send out there for the mission of Christ. Is that what, Paul, is that what God does? No, God does this. To keep Paul from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, he had a thorn given to him in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass him. A messenger from Satan to harass him, to keep him from being conceited, to keep him from feeling self-important, to keep him from being arrogant, to protect him from his own pride. Why is this so important? God tells us God's grace is sufficient. His power, His power is made perfect. How? In weakness. So what does Paul then do? What does Paul do in the midst of this suffering and this ongoing harassment, this prod, 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 yeah, 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 whisper, 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 this thorn in his side? Does he fight it? Does he stand up as a legitimate apostle and in the name of Jesus push back and cast out this satanic harasser? No. He prays about it. He comes to God and he says, this sucks and you can do that. God invites you to do that. There's no prayer too big for God. God's big enough for that. And Paul simply asks God, just please take it away. He's not commanding anything. He's not trying to use his authority for his own gain. He simply asks God, take it away. I'm sure that in these prayers, he would have been sharing the words of Jesus not my will, but your will be done. Three times he prays it and three times the answer is no. The answer is no. God, please take away this thing that is harassing me, that is tearing me down, that is just making me feel so weak. And God says no. And so Paul accepts it. And he uses it. He uses it. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, Paul has heaps to boast about. But God, 
through allowed affliction, he keeps Paul close. He keeps Paul humble. He keeps Paul dependent through affliction. You see, we learn from this that God prefers to use a broken instrument to make beautiful music to show his skill in playing in order that the world will know that it's him, God the musician, and not the instrument that is making the beautiful music. Paul remains on the Christian mission, God helping him remember that this is what he proclaims. It's not himself, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That is the message that Paul has. That is the good news that Paul has. That is what Paul appeals to in the credibility of his witness. God allows affliction to keep Paul honest. That's pretty heavy, hey? That's pretty heavy. So what does this teach us? What are some bullet points to take away in thinking about how this applies? Well, specifically, we have a few things to think about regarding weakness and suffering in the life of the Christian who longs to live for God's glory. First thing, God prefers a humble person to speak about the humble king. Secondly, not all suffering is judgment or discipline. For the Christian, suffering can be a gift from God to get us back to God. Where do the kids run to when they hurt themselves? Back to dad, back to mum, back to the embrace. Sometime God, sometimes God will allow a little hurt so that we run back to him. It's a gift because it's in his presence that's fullness of joy. For the Christian, suffering, hear this, will always have meaning and purpose. Suffering will always have meaning and purpose for the Christian. Think of a mother who goes through childbirth, suffering, but joy on the other side. Think of a soldier who endures torture for the sake of his mission, suffering, but for a greater purpose. And hear this, for the Christian, for the Christian, suffering is character forming. They become more like Jesus, more as God destined and created them to be. You see, being made to feel needy by God is a, mechanism, is a mechanism for us to rely on God and not ourselves. Isn't that what he's doing here with Paul? He allows the suffering for Paul to rely on God and not himself because what's the temptation for Paul? I'm a big dog and I know it, but my power is not in me. My power is in Christ. Here's something we take from suffering. Moments of feeling weak are actually the most real moments in your life. Do you know that? Moments of feeling weak are actually the most real moments in your life because Jesus says, apart from him, we can do nothing. 
You know, in the lowest moments of when you're just like, you finally figure out that you actually have no control over anything. You have no control over your heart on whether it's going to beat in the next 30 seconds. You have no control over the T intersection and whether the person is actually going to stop at that red light. You have no control over the weather. You have no control. And when we suffer, we get frustrated because we can't do anything about it. And we're reminded that we are not in control, but God is in control. It's a divine reality recheck. So we go, ah, I've been trying to do this on my own. Back to God. Thank you so much, Jesus. And how's this about suffering? When the world sees change from a message that is spoken by a messenger who is weak, there's no doubt as to where the power lies in relation to that message. So church, what do you take from this? I would say embrace being mediocre in the world's eyes. I would say embrace being unimpressive in the world's eyes. It's biblical. God uses people like that all the time who don't rely on their own strength. Abraham, he was an old man, old man. Gideon, full of self-doubt, under-resourced. David, his own father considered him insignificant. Remember how he became king? It's like, where's your boys? Oh, yeah, here they are. It's not one of these boys. Do you have another boy? It's like, oh, well, I guess there's David. I said, get all your boys. I'm like, well, I, I thought I did. Mary, teenage girl. Moses, he killed a guy and he didn't even like talking. And he's the guy that God chooses to be like, go and talk to Pharaoh. Esther, she felt weak. She felt isolated. Josiah, he was a kid. And Elijah, he was bold. Embrace feeling insignificant. Embrace being perceived as unqualified. See, this is so liberating when you think about it. For the Christian, the pressure is not to be perceived in a particular way in this world. In Jesus, that pressure has been lifted off. You can feel lighter as you remember, it is the power of God. It's not up to me. I just got to do what I can, not get cocky about it, and remember that I can't even change anything. That's what God does. It's not up to me. The power is in the message, not in the messenger. And the times that I feel like I'm stumbling and tripping and that I'm stuffing it up and that I feel weak and that I get afflicted, I'll be like, wow, actually, this makes me run back to God. Thank you. When I am weak, then I am strong. The power is not in the performance of a ceremony or a concert. The proclamation is not better coming from a man in a robe and collar or wearing Dulce and Gabbana. We don't need to dress up what is already divine. 
We don't need to embellish the message that is eternal. We just speak the message, the good news. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And this is good news. Do you know why it's good news? Because the Lord, the King, He is kind. The Lord, the King, He is merciful. He loves you. He is for you. He is powerful. And the King has opened up a time for amnesty for this whole world for God's people to return home. The King promises forgiveness. The King promises victory. Why? Because the King, King Jesus, He's won the victory. He has made a way for forgiveness. He's paid the debt. How? By his own broken body and shed blood, he paid the debt. And in the world's eyes, maybe, yes, this is a weak message. But God has a reason for it. Constant, desperate dependence upon the one who gives the growth. This is why every week we need to pray. It's why today for our city kids, as we think about their future, we start with prayer. So on Monday, every week here, here to pray, God, not up to, not up to us, it's up to you. Unless the builder builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Prayer is the foundational posture that says to God, you are Lord, you are in control, we are not. God's power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, let us boast all the more gladly of our weaknesses. Let our own shortcomings be known to ourselves so that we would instead lead on God. And so the power of Christ may rest upon us. So Paul, in giving clarity to this church in Corinth, he appeals to his own life and ministry. His weakness, not his elegance is what God prefers to use for us to remain sincere and pure in our devotion to Christ. And let us just close on the second reason, much, much shorter, only one verse, but intensely more persuasive. Paul argues using his own life experience as a means of understanding God's preferred posture for those with faith. Then this, Final verse in our reading. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's life, and then where's his appeal go to? Jesus' life. Did you pick up on the rationale for Paul's contentment, whatever the calamity? For the sake of Christ, he says. For the sake of Christ. If you want to know what to expect, if you're going to commit yourself who is serious in being a disciple of Jesus, if you want to know what to expect or what it looks like to be a child in God's family, if you want to know what to expect about what it means to be a soldier in God's army, yes, look at Paul, but look where Paul also looked. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. 
Jesus is the model of faith. Jesus is the one to whom we are called to receive and obey and confess for reconciliation with God and your relationship with God. It's Jesus. He is Lord. And his life is reflected of what? Is it reflected in the super apostle's life? How's Jesus compared to these super apostles? Jesus, what about his birth? Was it in a palace? No, it was in a barn. Jesus, what about his initiation into ministry? Was it in a grand temple? No, it was in the wilderness, in obscurity. Jesus, what about his home? What about his lifestyle? What about his living circumstances? Were they marked by prosperity? No, they're marked by obscurity. Jesus, what about his teaching? Was he always submitted to? No, he was always questioned. What about Jesus? What about his authority? Do people just always obey the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? No, he was easily betrayed by his friends. What about Jesus? What about his entrance into the holy city, going into Jerusalem? Was it on a war horse? In triumphal victory? No. It was on a donkey. What about his death? King Jesus dying peacefully in his sleep under his satin sheets and next to his bookcases filled with many leather-bound books. No, he was brutally tortured on a Roman cross. What about Jesus and his victory over sin, Satan and death? Was it sensational as a warrior? No, it was sacrificial like a lamb. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Tim Keller writes, suffering is actually the heart of the Christian story, suffering. And Tim Keller's literary mentor, C.S. Lewis, writes, I suggest that it is because God loves us that he gives us the gift of suffering. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, we are all like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves forms of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what make us perfect. Are you willing to suffer like Jesus? If you've trusted your eternal soul to God, do you trust God now with your physical body and mental anguish? You can trust God. 
Because Paul writes, and this is where we started, he says, I fear that your thoughts will be led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You can trust God and you can acknowledge your weakness before him and you can be devoted to Christ. Why? Because Jesus was infinitely devoted to you and suffered immeasurably more for you on the cross so that you would not have to experience eternal suffering away from God. Isn't that beautiful? Many are the afflictions of the righteous, the psalmist says, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. The psalmist writes, It is good that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Luke says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Paul writes, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. To the Philippian church, he writes, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. To Timothy, he writes, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then Peter writes, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, will himself, will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen and establish you. You can have confidence to walk with Christ in whatever circumstances because we know that whatever affliction we have, it's temporary, it's, it's, it's purposeful, it's in the presence of Jesus. It's nothing compared to what would have been coming our way apart from Jesus and it'll make us more like Jesus and bring glory to God as through that weakness, his message of good news shines even brighter. So here's the final call to us as a church from this passage. Just something for us to consider. Paul says, God's power is made perfect in weakness. What if God's plan for this church family, what if his plan for our growth was suffering? What if God's strategy to reach the surf coast with the message of Jesus is king was through a people who are obviously suffering but somehow are obviously hopeful because of this king? Could you commit to that? If you know Jesus, you can because his power is made perfect in weakness. Embrace it. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.